0: This series will conclude next Sunday, and that will give me one Sunday before Christmas for a nice kind of traditional Christmas message. Uh, Next Sunday is the climax in most people's mind to the book of Daniel, and that's Daniel in the lion's den. Last time, as you recall from Daniel chapter 4, we noted that we serve and worship a God that is sovereign. Remember, that's not a word that we throw around very often. It's certainly not a word used in casual conversation. But the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. That means He is in control of everything. He is all-powerful. He is completely, completely omniscient. There's nothing He doesn't know, for instance. God is sovereign. You need to remember that because from Daniel chapter 4, God demonstrated His sovereignty over King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms of this world. Understanding that God is sovereign is basically the foundation for everything else we try to build onto our faith wall. If you take away the idea that God is sovereign, then why in the world would I or anyone else try to convince you to surrender to him? I mean, if God's ways are not sovereign, if God is not all-knowing, if God is not all-powerful, then why in the world would I try and convince you to serve him? If God is not sovereign, then what makes His plan for marriage any better than my plan for marriage? If God is not sovereign, what makes His plan for money any better than my plan? What makes His plan for my life any better than my plan for my life? And I gave you an acronym last week to help you remember this idea and concept of God's sovereignty. It's the word plan, P-L-A-N. P, of course, stands for plan, plan. The Bible teaches over and over and over again in multiple ways, using multiple people, ordinary people just like us, that God has a plan for your life. Now, that's an easy concept to buy into when you're 20 because you think you know what that plan is. You think it's going to turn out your way. So it's very easy to buy into the concept of a sovereign God who has a plan for my life. But fast forward through a divorce, through an illness, through losing someone close to us that we love and you're not so sure anymore. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that little old you and little old me, God has a plan for each one of us. Now, the L stands for his unmatched love. The plan that God has laid out for your life, the plan that he's laid out for your marriage, is designed to bless you because he, L, loves you. So God has a plan, a purpose for my life. It is motivated by love. There's a kind of a twofold teaching throughout the Bible that everything we do, we do that, to honor and bring glory to God, and He then blesses us because of it. The blessing on me and the glory on Him is part of walking and living out His plan. A plan that is motivated by love. If these two things are true, then why in the world, A, wouldn't I grant him the authority in my life? Why in the world would I want anyone else, including myself, to be the sovereign in my life? I should make God the authority in my life because they have a plan for me, and it is a plan that's motivated by love. And N stands for God help me never to neglect his calling. Now, by now you know that the Babylonians who had replaced or overpowered the Assyrians as the dominant world power in that region of the day. They've handpicked men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They've transported them 900 miles from their homeland. they burned their capital city, Jerusalem, to the ground. And Daniel and his friends are now in exile. It's like they're living between two kingdoms. They're not in their own kingdom, but they're certainly not. And they're in a strange kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. They're learning a new culture. They're learning new ways, new history. They're learning a new language. Daniel is far from home. And what I want you to see as we start this is that in less than a thousand years, God's nation, his chosen people, has basically come to an end. In less than a thousand years, we've gone from Genesis chapter 11 and God's choosing Abram as the father of his great nation through the highlights, lowlights, the pinnacle, and now the decline of God's great nation. It took less than a thousand years. It appears that both Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom, in the time of Daniel, they're both gone. They no longer exist. The capital cities of each have been burned to the ground. I put together a timeline to kind of help you see how this unfolds throughout the story of the Old Testament, okay? If you think in terms of 2100 to 2200 BC, 21 to 2200 BC, that's when God spoke to Abram, all right? The Bible opens up in the book of Exodus God's people having served 400 years in bondage in Egypt. Most of you know that story. That's where Moses comes on the scene. The Exodus and the Ten Commandments actually occur in 1445 B.C. We also know that because of the people's stubbornness and their idolatry, no sooner did Moses lead them out of Exodus that they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. So now you do the math and you realize that in 1406, 1406... Moses is dead. Joshua is now leading the people of Israel. They cross the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land. We go through that long period, 400 years or so of the judges. We get to the first king, somewhere around 1050 BC. That's King Saul. The second and greatest king is King David. And under King David, the kingdom expands. I mean, it shines. It becomes the dominant power in the region. David hands off to Solomon, his son. And again, the kingdom is at its shining moment in history. But in 930 B.C., Solomon's son, Rehoboam, decides to divide the kingdom, and that's when everything starts running downhill. You've got Israel to the north, and you've got Judah to the south. By the time we get to the book of Daniel, the year is 586 B.C. So from the pinnacle of their success to the remnant, that barely exists now, in exile in Babylon, has been less than 500 years. 500 years. The kingdom has gone from its shining moments to its darkest hour. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the subject of exile, the subject of bondage and slavery, is part of the Jewish identity even today. If you are a devout Jew in this country or that part of the world the idea of God's chosen people in exile is still a part of your history and a part of your identity today. If you've ever turned on the television and you've seen an Orthodox Jew wearing all black, got their hair fixed a certain way, usually with a long beard, and they're doing this in front of that broken down wall in Jerusalem. That, by the way, a remnant of the bright city shining on the hill. Uh, what they're doing is they're repenting for their nation They're asking God to reinstate His chosen people to a position of power and influence in the world. They're asking God for a return from exile. The Old Testament is about that story. Their history reflects it today. You turn pages into the New Testament, and many of the New Testament authors, the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, all Jews themselves, all with this rich spiritual heritage of the Old Testament. Guess what? They speak of the church. They speak of you and me, followers of Jesus Christ, as exiles. They say we are, quote, aliens in a strange land. They say we are foreigners. We are strangers. Their eye is not on this kingdom of the world in the New Testament. It's on the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. The idea and subject of exile is all throughout the pages of the Scripture. Now, there's some background for you. Let's change gears and get into this today. Today, very simply, is a message on the subject of character. Today is a message on the subject of character. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know the last time I delivered a message on the subject or the topic that we'll address today. When living between two kingdoms, we're not a part of this kingdom or this world, but we're not yet in the kingdom of heaven. We're exiled between the two. Character matters. Character counts. Character is significant. Character could be the difference between success and failure in your personal faith walk. The Bible teaches that character is certainly a key to unlocking the blessings of God. And Daniel, especially in chapter 6, is a premier example of steadfast, faithful character. Now, we were introduced to Daniel in chapter 1. In chapter 1, Daniel is like 14 years old. He's been plucked from his homeland, transported 900 miles to Babylon, the Babylonian capital, and there he is. As a teenager, Daniel was growing into a man of character. Remember in chapter 1, he stood for a private, personal conviction. There he is, being faithful to God in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Daniel appears again. Now he's in his late 20s, most likely, and he's called upon to interpret a dream that the king has had. Once again, there he is in exile. It's not his homeland. It's not his native tongue. Things aren't as he would have planned them, but he's faithfully serving God. We go along into chapter 4, and we're introduced to him again. Now he's my age. He's a middle-aged man in chapter 4. He's called upon again to interpret the dream of a troubled king. Now, I'm pointing this out to you because when we teach Daniel using a flannel graph in Sunday school to children, we very often think that bam, 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 one big thing happened after another, one big thing happened after another, and Daniel's life was sprinkled throughout with these monumental moments of victory. No. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, our text for today, Daniel is older than my father. He's in his mid 80s. So do the math. For seven decades, Daniel has been plodding along. Daniel has been taking care of business. Daniel has been been being faithful for God's sake. Daniel has been standing alone when necessary. For seven decades, I asked Amy, I said, Amy, how old do you think Daniel was in chapter 6 when he winds up in the lion's den? She said, I don't know, 30? Triple that. He's about 85 or 86. He's lived his entire life in exile. It's all he knows. But Daniel and his story proves him to be a great man of character. One of my favorite authors, been around a long time, is named Max Lucato. Max Lucato tells the story of an extraordinary professional baseball pitcher who performed almost no extraordinary feats. Uh, this man was a veteran of Major League Baseball for 21 seasons. And in only one of those did he actually win as a pitcher more than twenty games. This man never pitched a no hitter. He never threw a perfect game. In only one season of twenty-one years in the big leagues did he receive any league recognition at all, and that was in nineteen eighty-six when he, or excuse me, nineteen eighty when he led with the lowest ERA of two point two two one. His name was Don Sutton. You probably know that name if you're a fan of baseball. And in 1986, he rubbed shoulders with the true legends of baseball because Don Sutton became only the 30th man in history to win 300 games. In 1998, he was enshrined in Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame, not for doing anything out of the ordinary, but for outlasting many of his contemporaries. Here's what Don looks like. That's how I remember him when I was a kid not because it's black and white, that's just the best picture I could find, he was a Dodger and my favorite team was Johnny Bench and the Cincinnati Reds with Joe Morgan at second and Pete Rose at third, Don Gullett on the mound, George Foster in left field and every time we faced our division rivals, the Dodgers, Don Sutton would beat us. Here's how you know him today, probably. See him? He's second from the left there. See that patented trademark curly Q haircut there? Okay. He's a announcer for the Braves on both TV, television, and radio. Reading from Max Lucado about Mr. Sutton. He writes, his own analysis, being Don's own analysis of his success, is worth your noting. I'm a grinder. I'm a mechanic. I never considered myself flamboyant or exceptional. But all my life, I found a way to get the job done. And get the job done, he did. In 1986, Inside Sports Magazine called him the, quote, family sedan of baseball's men on the mound. He certainly boasted none of the Ferrari style of the last 30-game winners, who rose to stardom but then faded quickly. He boasted none of the Mercedes-Benz sparkle of a Sandy Koufax or the like's. But after their types were parked in museums or taken to the junkyard, Don Sutton was still on the mound getting the job done. There are many Ferraris, Mercedes, Porsches in the Bible. People like Paul, David, Moses, and others who speed across the pages of the Bible, accomplishing great things for the glory of God. But Daniel is not one of them. Daniel is like the trusty family sedan. Now... Over that 70-year period, I just want to remind you of a couple things. Daniel has not made a big splash in Babylon. Now, he has been continually promoted in the ranks of government. He's finally arriving, as you'll see in a moment, to the position of what we would call prime minister. He's like second man in charge under the king. But the Jews, his people are still in captivity. There's been no mass revival in Babylon because of Daniel's impact or his influence. Some of the kings have changed their hearts and minds. Nebuchadnezzar came to faith. And you'll see in a moment, Darius comes to faith at the end of chapter 6. However, none of the people had. I mean, they were still as vile, adulterous, they were still as murderous, cruel, and immoral as they had ever been. In fact, after all those years of being influenced by Daniel, after Daniel's strong desire to stand alone for decades... The people are the same today as they were when he was a teenager. It seems that few are really impressed with Daniel. It seems he's more a family sedan than a sporty race car. I want you to read five verses with me, beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 6. Here's what the scripture says. It pleased Darius. Now, we've gone from Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, to his son, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, who incidentally got murdered, Now, the Babylonians are no longer the the dominant power in the region. The Medes and Persians are. And Darius, who is also called Cyrus in the Bible and in history, is now the man in charge. Here's what he does. He appointed 120 satraps. These are government representatives. It's like uh, the secretary of state, um, the president's cabinet. They could represent King Darius anywhere in the kingdom. He presents 120 of them to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them. What Darius is doing here is now that the Medes and the Persians are in control, he's reorganizing his kingdom. So he's got 120 government representatives and he's got three guys that are over those 120 and Daniel is one of them. The satraps who made, the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Verse 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That's when he'll take the role of prime minister. Verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in the conduct of his government affairs, but they were unable to do so. Now, watch the end of verse 4, because the whole message rides on this description of this great man of character. They could find no corruption in him, Because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. This is the theme of the message today. This is the key verse in the chapter to me. This is the definition of character. Okay, More on that in a minute. Verse 5. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel had been standing alone for decades. Daniel had been standing true and faithful for decades. And it seems that all his faithfulness has gained him so far is jealousy from his peers, the hatred of the ungodly, a plot against his very life, and as we will see next Sunday, a death sentence in the lion's den. But through it all, Daniel was able to stand. He remained faithful in spite of the changes that were going on around him. That, my friend, is character. Character is defined at the end of verse four this way. He was trustworthy. He was neither corrupt nor negligent. If you are trustworthy and neither, and not corrupt, you are a person of integrity. Integrity defines, spells out, draws a clear picture of Daniel's character. The opposite of corruption is integrity. I looked up the word in the dictionary. Integrity means honest. Having strong moral principles. I love this. Whole. Undivided. That's integrity. Now, I bring this to your attention because... Every day, every one of us is tempted to compromise in some way. Every one of us. Every day, in some way, in order to get ahead, we're tempted to compromise. In order to get to a goal that we set up for ourselves, we're tempted to compromise. Every day, every day, in so many various ways, all of us are tempted to compromise. But Daniel refused. That's what character does. It stands alone when it's necessary. You see, character plods along faithfully, measuring progress, not by what's on the scoreboard, but by the fact that we're still in the game. See, men and women of character are men and women of integrity. And living between the kingdoms, that matters. That makes them whole. That keeps them from being divided. Integrity. They said... Daniel is trustworthy, and he's not corrupt. That is, by definition, integrity. And integrity is at least half of the equation to character. Here's the other half. Competence. You see that? Daniel was trustworthy, and he was not corrupt. Okay, he was a man of integrity. But it also adds, nor was he negligent. That's competence. Character demands competence. Now listen, don't make the religious mistake of assuming that the only reason Daniel's being promoted throughout the story of Daniel is because God just shined on him. God just loved him so much. And God just had this plan for him. And because Daniel was obedient, God rewarded him by helping him climb the government. No. Sure, God had a plan for Daniel. And sure, God is blessing Daniel inside and out. However, Daniel was good at what he did. He was competent. Daniel was not only faithful to God, he could be faithful to the king. Daniel not only served God in an effective manner, he served Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Belshazzar Belshazzar in an effective manner. Daniel was both a man of integrity and a man of great competence. I think competence is a dying virtue in our culture. Do you? I think that we've gotten comfortable celebrating our mediocrity. I think you can go home this afternoon and turn on a variety of ch- television channels and watch popular culture celebrate its average mediocrity, even its dysfunction. I think you could watch television throughout the week. You could search the Internet, peruse Facebook and YouTube, and you can find example after example of our willingness to stop at average Hey, here's a trophy. Thanks for showing up. You have a pulse. You win. Do you realize the Bible promotes anything but that? God's standard for the Christ follower in the workplace, in the home, in our community is excellence, not mediocrity. I think this is where some couples go wrong, especially business, working, professional couples. They so excel in the workplace They are committed to excellence in the workplace. They come home and they slip into apathy, average mediocrity when it comes to mutual honor, when it comes to respect, when it comes to loving sacrifice, when it comes to husbands and wives and family. That's why they're unfulfilled. That's why no matter how much they make by the time they're 40, their marriage is on the rocks. You see, in every avenue of your life, and I cannot emphasize this enough, whether it's your home, your marriage, your relationship with your children, the workplace, this church and how you serve it, how you give to it, this place in the community, God's standard is excellence, not average mediocrity. So let's not get too comfortable. If you or someone you know is a follower of Jesus Christ and you work for a certain company, you ought to be hardworking. You ought to be honest. You ought to be men and women Of integrity and competence. If you are the owner of the company, you own the business, your employees ought to look at you and say, he's fair, he's just, he's dependable and honest. Now, some would stand here and argue that integrity, character, competence even, it's all a part of your DNA. Some people are just born, wired a certain way. I don't agree with that. Others would say it's all about the environment. It's all about how your mama and your daddy raised and reared you in the home. That's why you're a person of character, integrity, competence. I don't agree with that either. Both may play a role, but I've been at this too long and I've seen too many people come down the road, embrace faith in Jesus Christ, start connecting, growing, and serving, and they change. They turn. They've still got the same parents, they still have the same upbringing, they've still got the DNA, it's the same, but what changed? A faith decision. So I'm standing here today and I'm looking at a group of people and I want to say to you, you can decide today to be a person of character. Because first, it begins in your mind. It begins with what's going on between your ears. That's where character begins. Character isn't about family heritage or what kind of person dad was or mom was. Character begins right here. You can today make up your mind. I will be a man or woman of character. I, like Daniel, will pursue integrity and competence because it all starts in the mind. That makes your thought life key. Key. Picture a laptop computer for a moment. That's your mind. Your mind is a sophisticated computer, and you only get out of it what you've put in it. You get that, right? So the obvious question is, what are you putting in your mind? Now look, I'm glad on a limb here. I'm going to bet you that if 85-year-old Daniel were with us today, he wouldn't go home this afternoon and spend hours on Facebook. I'm just pretty sure that isn't how he'd spend his Sunday afternoon. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't spend hours in front of Comedy Central this week or watching videos on YouTube. I'm pretty sure that his whole week wouldn't revolve around the television or the Internet because Daniel knew character begins in your mind, and what you put in your mind is the only thing you'll have access to when you want to pull something out. So it begins there. That's mental. Now let's talk about the will, the volition. Number two, character demands self-discipline. Self-discipline. We have to remain steadfast and obedient if we're going to become men and women of character. That's why I love the paradigm of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. This is something I can get behind. Steadfast obedience. I'm not capable of that. That's why the paradigm is this. Try, fail, confess. Try again. And it works every time. Try, fail, confess try again. I can look back over my life and I can see seasons, months or years where I wrestled with this sin. I tried, I failed, I confessed, I tried again. And one day I stopped wrestling with it. But then guess what? Here comes sin number two. What's behind door number two? And I tried and I failed and I confessed and I tried again. And one day I woke up and realized, man, I haven't struggled that in years. Self-discipline is a necessity if you're to become a person of character. Here's my advice. Pick something small. Pick something small and start with that and build on it. Men, walk out of here and buy that men's book for $10 at the information table, read it, and come to men's group. Self-discipline. Here's the last one. Character limits our immediate choices, but it multiplies our long-term opportunities. Now, that's a lot of words. I tried to shrink it, but I just couldn't. Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about saying no today in order to say yes tomorrow. We're talking about recognizing that a sacrifice today can produce a blessing tomorrow. Do you realize that lives that aren't all tangled up in sin are lives that have options? You realize that? That's why the author of Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says this. Let's lay aside these weights, these sins that so easily tangle us. And let's run with faith, perseverance, the race that God's marked out for us. Daniel's story contains profoundly basic principles. We teach them in Sunday school. In this five-part series, I'm not speaking Hebrew. I'm not talking Greek. I'm not focusing on these dreams and trying to teach you to interpret these dreams. No. We're talking about things like standing when the going gets tough. We're talking about things like faithfulness. We're talking about things like the sovereignty of God and trusting in His plan. The story of Daniel contains profoundly basic principles that yield profoundly dynamic results. And you need to remember... Your taking a stand will likely not become nearly as public as Daniel's taking a stand. But I would remind you, his didn't start out public. In chapter 1, Daniel made a simple, simple, private decision based upon conscience about his diet, not to eat the king's meat. And God built upon that experience, that character, that integrity, and that competence into the man who will, next Sunday, stare down the dental lions. If you're here today, and you're thinking seriously about taking this challenge, then I want you to remember just a couple of things, and we'll quit. When you get up and you leave here today, and you say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And character is kind of one of those old-fashioned words of nobility we threw around in the 50s, but... I'm not so sure it's on the front burner of our lives today. I'm going to make it so. Here's what I want you to remember. Number one, it won't be easy and it won't come suddenly. You commit to character today, I will become a man or woman of character. You've got to understand, it's going to take a long time. Daniel's story, though it unfolds in six chapters, took 70 years for him to walk out. It won't come easily and it won't come suddenly. Number two, you need to remember the number one problem is going to be consistency. You're going to have good days and bad days. You're going to have good months and bad months. You're going to have good years and bad years. But you've got to get up every time and you've got to try again. And number three, remember if you don't start now, you probably never will. If you don't commit today to character, you probably never will. It's just that important. And Daniel's story bears it out. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for a life. That from our vantage point seems extraordinary, but when you break it down, you realize it is filled with ordinary. So many days, months, years are left out of Daniel's story. We get the highlights. We get the victories, we get the high points, but Father, this was a man that lived to be 80 plus years old in another culture, and day in and day out, he simply plotted along, tried to do the best job he could in light of his faith in you, the one true God. Help us do the same. Help us keep it just that simple. Make us men and women of integrity and competence, I pray because of Christ. Amen. Hey, God bless every one of you. God bless you, Grace Community Church.